what was so shocking for me, I had never stepped into a school that was 100% black ever until I moved to Chicago. And that was mind blowing for me. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment, it's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? Well, hello, hello. Hi, Daddy. It's so good to talk to you today. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Ataya Shackleford-Walter. I am the principal at Chicago Quest High School in the great city of Chicago. And, you know, Black educators matter because there's just not enough of us out there. And we really need to make sure that we are representing the students who we're in front of every single day. And we need to really rethink the ways in which we come to work that matters. And as Black educators, we need to reach out to get some more Black educators in. And so our stories matter, our words matter, and the impact that we have on Black and Brown kids' lives matter. Mm-hmm. Now, Ms. Shackle for Walter, do you have a nickname that you go by? <laughs> I go by Shaq. So anyone who's ever worked with me knows me by Shaq. That is my professional name. And if you call me Zataya in the office, I may not answer because I may not know that you're even talking to me. <laughs> All right, Shaq. Now, where are you from? Oh, man, I am a Bay Area girl. I am from the North Bay and California, where I was born and raised. I went to St. Mary's College of California in the hills of Moraga. So I am an implant. I came to Chicago back in 2002. So, you know, I've definitely dug roots here. I've definitely done most of my life's work here, but I'm from the Bay. I <laughs> I represent the Bay. I mean, I, I miss the sunshine, the regular sunshine anyway, and, you know, 60 degree weather as it's, you know, snowing right now. <laughs> I'm missing home even more. <laughs> so thinking about your K through eight experience in California, what was that like? Did you grow up in a diverse area? Did you have any black educators? So that's actually just where my education journey begins and, and how I came into doing this work that I've committed to. I grew up in Richmond, California, so I want to represent the Bay there. And no, we we grew up in a pretty diverse, I would say, community where we were all socioeconomically challenged. We were poor, you know, just to put it put it straight and plain. And um, just working class black and brown people with a number of different ethnic groups all in our little conclave. And so I grew up with black kids like me, with Latinos, with kids who came from, you know, who immigrated from Vietnam or from Laos or 
you know, from a number of different places, Korea, so, you know, Filipino. So I grew up with a number of different cultures and languages being spoken around me and just all just a group of people who were just struggling to make sure that, you know, food was on the table and that clothes were on our backs and roofs were over our heads. So that's how I began my life as a, as a student. But then my mom passed away when I was seven. And it was at that point where educational life for me just took a crazy turn. And I went from a place of being the smartest kid in the room, from being the teacher's pet. Everyone knew me. Everyone knew my mama. They knew I was not going to fall out of line. You know, they treated me as if I were special. And all of a sudden, after my mom's passing, I went to live with my dad and I became the only black kid in the room. And so my my experiences changed drastically to where I wasn't the smartest kid in the room anymore. No one thought I was special. And, you know, my, my white teachers definitely didn't think I was special. And actually, they ignored me for the most part. And so it was then very early on that I realized that school looked different for different kids in different places. And that's something that really just kind of stuck with me throughout the rest of my educational experience and career, all the way through 12th grade, where my locus, my group of friends looks like me, but they weren't in any of my classes. Where did they go <laughs> during the course of the school day? I ate lunch with them every day. I hung out with them after school every day. Yet and still, I was the only black kid in the class. And I just began to wonder, like, what happens to black and brown children in these spaces and who's making those decisions? And I wanted to be the person making those decisions. And so that's how, you know, 20 years later, here I am being the person who makes decisions for black and brown kids. That's going to uplift them and change their circumstances and just elevate them and not hinder or destroy them. It is incredible that you remember that feeling of school looking different and feeling different as a child, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we know like working in the space, school looks very, very different depending on where you live and what you have access to. So you yeah. had that firsthand experience as a child. Where did you go to college and did you go declared as an education major? So I stuck around. I stayed close to home. I was 16 when I graduated from high school. Okay, Shaq. So <laughs> okay. How was so, that? That's the thing in it. So how was that for you? It was normal. <laughs> I, you know, there were things that I could not do that my friends could do, right? Like I couldn't drive until senior year in high school. There were certain freedoms that my classmates had as seniors that my dad was not playing around with me. You know, like my curfew was none. There was no curfew. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, there were definitely some constraints on my high school social life, but I skipped third grade. And so at that point, everything was very normal for me. It wasn't anything that was just life altering to graduate that young, except for the fact that I wanted to go to Spelman and there was no way my dad was letting a 16 year old travel across the country to go to school. That wasn't happening. So my HBCU dreams got dashed very quickly. So I went to a very small Catholic college in the hills of Moraga, like I said, and very upwardly mobile student population, very white. And so once again, I'm the only, you know, black kid in the class again. I did not change that trajectory in my life. 
but I did enjoy the experience of being at a small school. I needed that. And I was able to do some work within the Black community there that maybe I wouldn't have been able to do if I had gone to an HBCU. So I think I made a good choice in that. I do look back and say, I wonder what would have been different if I'd gone to an HBCU. How would I be different? How would my philosophies be different? Or what would my life have have done in that instance? But I think that God puts us on the track that he wants to put us on. And we all have our stories to tell and live. And going to St. Mary's College in California was good for me because it kept me close to home and it kept my ears to the ground. So I was able to stay close to my family. And my brother and sister are 19 and 21 years younger than I am. And so if I would have left for college, I would have missed them and missed their births and their first steps and all of that. And so it was it was good for me to, to stick close to home. That's- and my dad never came to see me. <laughs> 30 minutes away and he never once came to see me. So, you know, he was just like, you're close enough where I can get to you if I need to, but I'm going to trust that that I've done a good job as a parent and let you figure some things out. So it was, it was, it was a good choice. You couldn't go to Atlanta, but you could go your 30 minutes. He let you have your space. He wanted you to know he understood the boundaries. (laughs) That was it. it. You're not going that far, but I know if if I need to get to you, I can get to you in 30 minutes with the way he drives is more like 15. (laughs) Now, were you a declared education major? No, I did not choose this path directly. My dad's a teacher. He was a math teacher. So black male math teacher in an urban setting. So he was definitely a trailblazer back in the 80s and 90s. And so I watched I watched my dad be a teacher. I went to school with him and sat in the back of his classrooms and really watched him in his element. And that was really his form of activism. So I got that very early on from him. But he also told me, like, don't do this work. He's like, (laughs) do not go into teaching. Go do something where you're going to make some money or go do something where you'll maybe have some fame or, you know, some notoriety. So I never thought I would go into teaching. But I'm a psychology major. So child development, early adolescent major. But I ended up with an English minor. I love reading. I love writing. And I ended up taking enough English courses as electives to to have a minor. So that, once again, just was very just indirect pathways leading me to the classroom. That's how I ended up being an English teacher. I had enough credits to, to have a minor in English. And I was able to you know, get my certification in English and teaching literature because of that minor. And so I graduated from St. Mary's in, oh Lord, May of 1999. And in June of 1999, somebody in all of their wisdom gave me 30 grammar textbooks with no teacher's edition (laughs) and 30 kids (laughs) and said, go teach these eighth graders who need English credits in order to go to high school. (laughs) Wow. So did you start your teaching career in California? Mm -hmm. Yep. So started my career in Vallejo, California. And the interesting thing about that was I grew up in a small town called Benicia, upper middle class, homogeneously white at the time, little sprinklings of Asian diverse ethnic groups there, Latino population, 
small black population, but majority a white or middle class town. And right across the street was Vallejo, California. And you knew there were some economic disparities between those two towns that were glaring. And so once again, I'm in this space where I'm looking at the fact that I grew up across the street, literally, here's this boundary here, this invisible boundary that makes up the separation between Vallejo and Venetia. And this place where I grew up has abundance. The academic education setting is, is one of high quality, very intentional, smart people making decisions, making sure that kids have access to what they need in order to be successful, strong, college-ready community. But right next door, none of those things are happening in a consistent way. And it was very clear. If you looked at the demographic makeup of those two cities that are abutting each other, that there are certain people who get are the haves and there are certain people who are the have-nots. And we were just too close to each other in proximity for that to make any real sense for me. I went back home to Venetia, stayed with my grandma for a little while, right out of out of college, and I went and taught next door in Vallejo and I had my first group of sixth graders and those were my babies. So yeah, it was it was a learning experience. It was definitely trial by fire. I did not have any teaching certification. I did not have any training. <laughs> I went to school at night to get my teaching certification in California and taught during the day. And it was really just my training ground and where I really began to have a, a better understanding about just the disparities and inequities in education across the country not just in my little small neighborhood of Benicia versus Vallejo, but this was happening everywhere and this wasn't anything new. And so how, as a 21-year-old, do I begin to really make sense of things and then decide how am I going to dismantle this system, this very institutional and historical system and so I thought, I need to learn more. I'm a reader. I'm a learner. I, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a thinker. And so I knew that me staying there and teaching and kind of plugging away was not going to do anyone a service. Definitely not me with just the, just the need to, and the passion to fuel this change that I was looking to make. And whether, you know, whether it be just like one classroom at a time or, or whatever, I just knew that there was something else better for kids than what they were getting. So that's how I ended up in Chicago. Yeah, because <laughs> so that was 21 years. So you've been an educator for 21 years. You started yeah. off as sixth grade English. What positions mm-hmm. have you held? So English teacher, founding English teacher, founded... Ace Tech Charter High School on the South Side as an English teacher, humanities teacher there. Then went on to begin my work with Noble as a dean of students and then assistant principal. Came to Civitas and began my work at the network level as the director of strategic supports, supporting the instructional team and operations. And here I am as a principal, which is another story. (laughs) 
<laughs> you've had a lot of different hats. And so you've seen the work from so many different perspectives, not even to include your own student experience. So did you see a difference between a California classroom and a Chicago classroom? Or for you, was it like kids are kids? Kids are kids. But what was so shocking for me coming from some very diverse communities was the segregation of the schools in Chicago. I had never stepped into a school that was 100% black ever until I moved to Chicago. And that was mind blowing for me because I thought if this looks like this, if this type of segregation looks like this, then I, I already know what is going on here within these walls. Because I know <laughs> what kids like me, what they, in general, what they get. Especially when it comes to, to education and, and opportunities and access. And, you know, for me, my fight and my struggle comes from the fact that my mother had to die for me to get access to a quality education. That lives with me. And so really where I come from in this is that no one's parent should have to die <laughs> for a kid to get access and opportunity in a place where education is a civil right, in a place where we have an abundance of funding for everything else except for public education. That has never sat right with me. And so that is why 21 years in, I'm still here and I'm still trying to figure it out. And I've been learning ever since. I never feel like I've gotten it right. So I continue to, to read and to be in the work and talk to people and have conversations and just really try to make sure that I'm still present, even though it's it's been 20 years. And I'm still in some forms fighting the same fight that I began fighting 21 years ago. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. What has been the most impactful moment you've had as an educator thus far? And you've worn so many different hats and you supported the work in so many different ways from the classroom lens, founding a school lens, working in administration, supporting the policies and procedures, the special projects, and now like being responsible for an actual school building. So yeah. like all of those different hats and all of those different lenses look at the work 
differently and experience the work differently. So what has been the most impactful moment that you've had thus far? I never wanted to be a principal. (laughs) Like it was never a part of the story that I was going to tell about my professional life. You know, and I, and I don't know if there was just a certain level of fear of having that much responsibility placed on me, knowing that the buck stops here and that the decisions that as a school leader you make are going to impact the rest of someone's life. So I really took pride and joy in running some things behind the scenes, making decisions behind the scenes, creating policies behind the scenes. And the opportunity came to make a huge necessary change in the life of a school. And I knew I was the only one who could do it. And I say that with all humility as I come to this work with, with nothing but humility, but I had been watching the school kind of spiral for a while and knew that I could make some changes that would really just really change the way the school was going, change the journey of the school, change the narrative of the school. And that happened relatively quickly. And I was, I mean, I, I don't know if I was surprised or (laughs) at, (laughs) I don't know if I was surprised at, the ability of, of the change and happening so quickly, but I was definitely, there was a bit of anger because I felt that the kids in this school, the scholars in this school deserved this change a really long time ago. And that change hadn't happened for so many of them who had graduated and gone on that I was just, I felt like there was a missed opportunity for a whole group of kids. And so that was because of who I am in this work that made me angry. But to be able to see the change in the culture of the school, the change in the way that the adults came to the work, the whole energy had changed. And that was because I led that work. And so that just made me think about, okay, well, who else can I, <laughs> what else can I touch? Where else can I go? How many more kids can I impact? Where, greater. I want greater responsibility now because I felt this little, this little piece of success here. And so just trying to figure out like, where can I go now? But that's why you said you left California. You came yeah. to Chicago in order to make that impact. And so you've been able to do it through all these different roles, but that position was the one that you that you ran from that you did not want and that's the one that actually you were able to see that change so you said like that work made you kind of angry to see like what could have been in the time that was lost so I can't wait to get your answer to this question (laughs) what is the state of education in black America and how did we get here Mm. I first want to say that I'm hopeful and you can't do this work without being hopeful. If you ever come to this work and you've lost hope, then go find something else to do because there are too many lives at stake. So I'm always hopeful that the changes that 
we see are going to make the biggest impact in these in our communities and create some real multi-generational change that is going to be seen and felt for you know centuries after after I'm gone but I think that right now the state is really just a a state of of metamorphosis and and change and upheaval and a little bit of chaos there's so much happening right now you know it just strikes me that for as long as I can remember and well before my memory we educators black people in our communities have been saying that there are some discrepancies here and there's something wrong with the way that this system is set up. The system is set up for reproduction and failure. And how are we supposed to dig ourselves out of really just a, a institutional foundation that's broken, that's cracked? And it took a global pandemic for those outside of this arena to say, oh, I guess you're right. You've been right this whole time. Now what? So I think there's a little bit of that external recognition that makes me, keeps me hopeful. But I think that just in, in the change that's needed, there has to be some chaos. There has to be just some massive seismic shifts that are going to really create some places and spaces where we can finally breathe again and really be able to do what's right for for our own communities. And I'm really excited about some of the schools that are that are opening and some of the changes that some of the larger networks in the country are making to different policies that they've upheld for so long. I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful that the changes and the conversations that are being had right now are going to make for some lasting change for our kids. I love that you anchor yourself in hope. I'm going to share that as well, because you are absolutely right. Like you can feel all kind of emotions, but if you ever lose hope in this work, then you may need to consider finding another space because hope is the fuel that will keep you going. Even when you cannot see You don't know what is coming up, but you just have to believe that it is working towards something. You mentioned like schools across the network starting to change policies. Are schools designed for children of color? And if if not, what have you seen that makes you hopeful or that keeps you hopeful? Mm -hmm. To answer that question, they have not been. They have not been designed for, for students of color. And we have proof in that because the data shows that even kids, black and brown kids who attend high quality schools in, you know, upwardly mobile, socially economic areas, they, they still do, they still perform less or lower than their white counterparts. They have the same access in the same school and they still perform lower that tells me something, not about the intellect of a person, but that tells me that there is a system that is set up culturally that doesn't provide a space for success. And so, you know, a lot of my work has been trying to figure out, well, what does that space look like? 
how do we make sure that we're creating spaces that are culturally responsive, that are respectful, that celebrate diversity, that are inclusive of all of the different ways that our kids come to to learn and allow for the adults to be honest in their biases and honest in what they bring with them every day. And how do we all work through that together in this space, in these communities? And just, I'm always just, I don't know. I, I'm always amazed by the, the types of energies that you can feel when you walk into different schools. And the school that I wanted to create, I wanted that energy to be a place where kids felt safe, where adults felt safe and respected to be and to be and bring whomever they are be authentic and then be able to take that authentic feeling and open yourself up to the possibility of being a learner so i struggle especially with being a school leader now knowing that whatever i put in place has to be authentic for my kids and also be a space where my my teachers, the adults, can also feel safe. And so once we figure that out, I think we will be in a better, a better place. Mm-hmm. How have you grown since you began your career 21 years ago when you were handed those 30 textbooks in these <laughs> sixth graders? And now here you are after having all of these successes, all of these challenges, you've seen things that you never could have imagined. So how have you grown since you started your career? You know what really changed me as an educator? It was having school-aged children of my own. Really changed my perspective on parenting and what it means to have to advocate for your for your own children. Knowing that there are things that I know as an educated as an educator and a parent that so many of of my parents don't know that they can advocate for their kids and making sure that I'm honest about that and I'm sharing that information with my parents. But there are decisions that are made that I would never want made for my child. Decisions that I've made that now I'm reflective of and know honestly and apologetically were not the best decisions for kids. And having my own children and knowing what is right for them is also right for my work kids has really changed the way that I look at the decisions that I'm making and what the long-term lasting effects are going to be on their lives. We have a lot of power as educators. And I don't think that people really understand that that the word that you speak into a child can change them. The decision that we make about the classes that they're taking, the content that they're learning, the way that we show up every day, all of that is powerful. And there are definitely decisions that I have made. I can, I can think of a specific young man right now where I could have possibly have ruined that boy's life. And I would not have been able to think of it that way if I did not have my own kids. I think back at high school and 
I was the freshman in high school, one of the only black kids in the class, had a solid A in English. Like once again, English and literature is my jam. Solid A. And at the end of every school year, the teachers in all of the classes would walk around with their grade books and go to each student individually and tell them which class they were going to be recommended for, for the next year. And so I'm sitting there and she comes up to my girlfriend, a good friend of mine next to me, who has a A plus in the class. She recommends her for honors English. And so I'm like, I know I'm getting recommended for honors English. Like my stuff is tight. I'm, I'm good here. And she gets to me and she doesn't recommend me for honors English. And I think, but I have an A too. What's the difference? The gatekeepers. So there's decisions like that, that have an impact that are so powerful. We yield so much power. And just think of, I think of who I might have been differently. If I would have just get, I gotten that nod from my teacher saying, I think you can do this. You're up for the challenge. That is so powerful. Mm. And so I have to show up like that every day for my kids. Amen. Amen. What challenges have you grown through? Mm. Right now, I've really been thinking about some of the policies that I've upheld as a school leader, not as a principal in this position, but in past leadership experiences that, once again, just maybe we didn't, you know, just ask myself, maybe I didn't get that right. And really just being reflective of that practice and trying to be apologetic, but still graceful to myself. I think that we all as human beings make the best decisions based on the information that we have in that moment. And I can honestly say that I have never, never intentionally been harmful to kids but I think that there were policies and rules that I upheld that once again the power in these decisions that could have possibly turned turned a student from okay to worse and as an educator that's not why I'm here so I think right now I'm in a space that is very challenging for me because I am being reflective and being graceful at the same time, but also thinking about those lives that I impacted and wanting to have some kind of redemption. That is so touching because I think as we continue to grow and especially now, since we're in a space, We talked about like creating spaces where we can say things like anti-racism. We've never talked about that in school before or even talked about like, how does this policy affect certain groups of people? We're both sitting here with this hair, both of us. And there are certain places where we would not be allowed to walk in with this hair. Mm -mm. 
<laughs> so like, and we've both been in positions where it's like, okay, so this is the rule. We are going to follow the rule. We are going to, without necessarily understanding how that affects kids, adults, families, legacies. So I appreciate, again, for me, like this whole conversation and being rooted in that hope mm-hmm. and having the opportunity to change, even if things were done before, it doesn't have to be done that same way in the future. And shout out to the grace. What <laughs> advice do you have for first year educators? Ooh, be kind to yourself. This work is hard. It is taxing. It is exhausting. It's also highly rewarding. I cannot leave this conversation without talking about my baby, and not one that I gave birth to, but my little Zataya. I had a student, one of my very first students here in Chicago, call me up a couple of years ago and say, um, I'm wondering if I can name my daughter after you. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have some more daughters, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so, you know, just one of the biggest tributes to my legacy is is having this little wonder named after me, knowing that it's because I gave this young man love. I gave him opportunity and I poured into him. And he remains one of the smartest kids I've ever met. And so, you know, I hold him in my heart as an educator, but I also feel good that he holds me too. That's really important that they hold us too. And so every chance I get, I'm sending her books and, you know, send me new pictures. Let me see her. And she's just the cutest thing. I say that there's rewards here. And there's been a shift in this idea of self-care that did not exist when I started teaching. And so my definition of a good teacher was to keep running. And, you know, there's, there's only so far you can run before you run out of gas, you run out of steam. And so don't, my advice is to not run out of gas, but to always be loving and kind to yourself, giving yourself a break, allowing a nap, (laughs) getting up a little earlier and taking some quiet time to meditate or to have your cup of coffee or your cup of tea, that extra 15 minutes in the morning will do you justice and make you a better person to show up in front of in front of kids every day. So kindness, be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing your story and coming onto the podcast, Shaq. I'm going to end with a question that I ask everyone, but before I ask you, I got to ask me, are there any black educators I would like to thank it? I would like to thank you, Shaq. Like we had an uh-huh. opportunity to collaborate while we were at Civitas and you were always someone that I could talk to about teacher recruitment. If I had questions around strategy, I could go to you and feel safe. I think one of the things that new educators always talk about is like having a mentor group or having somebody that you can go to and feel safe to talk about challenges that you're having. You were that person for me. So thank you so much. And are there any black educators that you would like to thank? I am going to thank and shout out my dad as a trailblazer, as a mentor, as an amazing model to our black boys and for making sure that I remain a lifelong learner. And so I want to, I want to, I want to shout out my, my pops 
Thank you, Pops. And thank you, Shaq. Again, everything that you've done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Danny. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.